Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to Mark Selby, nickel market commentator and also CEO of Canada Nickel Corp, a TSXV listed company with nickel asset in Canada. We look at the price pop in the nickel market this uh, week. It's gone up six bucks a pound uh, following last week's uh, acquisition talk. I think the market is hotting up at last. Uh, we also look at uh, the stainless steel sector, that is where two-thirds of nickel is currently used. Um, but we do get on to the magic, which is the EV thematic and nickel's future success, it seems the market wants to understand. So enjoy the podcast. Mark Selby, how are you doing? I'm excellent, Matthew. Good to see you again. Well, I'd love to see you for our weekly nickel catch-up, a roundup about what is happening in the world. And I need to pick you up on something. Okay. You ready? You said I'm to, ready. You said to me that nickel price would be moved sideways, right? What happened this week? I did. What happened? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, this might be my, uh, <laughs> my career as a nickel commentator might be cut extremely short. So yeah, no, it, 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 it ripped, uh, you know, 3% um, hit the $6 level, which is a very crucial sort of resistance support level uh, for nickel. So um, yeah, again, the fundamentals not pointing to it at all. But the thing I again, I'd sort of remind people is there's three reasons commodity prices move. There's fundamentals, which people always focus on. There's the technicals um, and then there's momentum. So you have other asset classes that are moving and they and the commodities get sucked up with it. So, um, you know, what I didn't predict um, and if I did, I didn't, you know, I would be retired is the Shanghai index moved 15% um, in one week last week. Wow. And so you had a surge of, of money come into commodity classes. So copper popped, nickel, nickel popped, um, and you've got to add a bunch of other commodity classes popping. The key thing there is um, in 2008, I literally right after the GFC, I toured around, met everybody I knew in China to try and figure out, okay, you know, you know, what was, you know, what did that GFC mean for China? And so uh, a good fortune of one company I had a relationship with, their billionaire backer basically got to meet with him and a bunch of his uh, company owners. And I asked him, I said, you know, look at, you know, what, what to, you know, what is the single best indicator to you in terms of turning points in the Chinese economy? And he said, surprisingly, he said, actually, the Shanghai Composite Index. And his reasoning was, Again, the Chinese market is very liquidity driven. So when the government sort of pumps money into the system, you need to see you looking for sort of a concrete confirmation that it's actually reached the, you know, the, the business face. And so the one of the ways that it does that is that money comes in high net worth people, business owners say, I got more money and they start buying stocks. And so, you know, the stock market, you know, in terms of a pop up, you know, and pop downs, it's a good turning point indicator. So. You know, the fact that the Shanghai index is ripping, you know, in, 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 at the same time that I talked about some of the other, other indicators, you know, you know, seven or eight weeks ago, you know, just as another confirmation that we're, you know, we really are seeing a sort of a commodity led reflation here. Anything else? What else is going on? Why is this price popping? What else? Is yeah. Um, no, no, I think in, in terms of the price pop, I mean, it really, really is momentum. And the fact that the fundamentals are there's, uh, you know, there's no. You know, there was nothing negative. The key thing here going forward is, you know, is the six bucks is a pretty big support resistance level. You know, I'm this price is up another five cents today. I'm not sure whether the fundamentals are strong enough to support it holding this level. I think we will we'll trade back down and we'll be range bound here for a little bit. So, you know, the key thing that I'll be watching for is to see things like 
you know, discounts for nickel pig iron, discounts for nickel sulfate, you know, do, do those do those narrow or those widen? So what was interesting as the nickel prices moved, you haven't seen the other prices of those other commodities move up with it. You know, the discounts have widened out. So, you know, un unless, you know, we see those things narrow over the next week or two, then we'll probably see prices come back down again, you know, 10, 15 cents. So okay. um, again, the risk here is all upside. I mean, I don't think there's much downside risk here because inventories are all heading in the right direction or staying flat. Um, but, um, you know, again, unless we see that fundamental confirmation of this momentum move, then, you know, it, it, it'll it'll reverse itself. Do you mind if we break that down a bit again for, you know, for newbies, sure. people new to this? Okay, you, you talk about fundamentals, yeah. technicals, momentum. So let's try and understand what yeah. fundamentals includes and then do the same for the uh, yeah. technicals and the momentum component. Okay, so fundamentals, you know, are a lot about stuff that I talked about in some of the, you know, the prior things. So looking at, you know, premiums, you know, for spot delivery of products versus sort of the exchange price. Is it, and then, you know, prices of other products relative to, you know, sort of the LME traded price, um, prices of scrap relative to the fund, you know, price. So those are all sort of fundamental factors. And then as well, things like inventory. So, you know, Inventories at various points in the supply chain, are they going up or down, you know, at the point in time, you know, those are all sort of fundamental, you know, sets of data there. And, you know, that that we're look that I would be looking at. So again, last week when I said things are going to be flat, you know, I was looking at those fundamental indicators and there wasn't anything that says, oh, you know, the price is going to pop next week. Um, right. Okay. And what about, so let's get into technicals yeah. then. So in terms of what do you look at or what do you look forward sure. to? Yeah, I know technicals, it, particularly in commodities and a, and a bunch of, um, you know, asset classes. Uh, again, if you're going to be committing serious money into this space, you know, a, a material portion of your investing, you need to understand the technicals. Um, and again, these are things like um, the prices moving relative to move, moving averages. Uh, there's things like relative strength in, in indexes in terms of how strong, um, uh, um, you know, how, how far prices can move up or down before they sort of burn out um, in terms of that, that price move. Um, because again, some of these lines, when you have like 50 days crossing 200 days or a price moving through a 50 day and a 200 day, it's amazing how much money just simply follows the technicals. You could have a horrible day. Fundamentally, some bad news comes out. But, you know, if the, if the price for whatever reason breaks those moving after the, the magic lines that I call them, you know, prices move you know, up or down. So, you know, again, you'd hate to buy something, you know, a day before on fundamental basis, just before one of these key technical points. And then your trade gets wiped out by the, you know, by a technical move that you had no idea uh, was coming. So, right, momentum. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the trickiest part because that 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 kind of, you know, that is money coming at you from a different sort of a different sector for a different reason. So, again, you need to realize, you know, commodities are a class. You know, and as much as we talk about aluminum and copper and nickel and uranium and so forth, you know, there are big hedge funds that are, you know, pulling levers on billions of dollars that go, okay, we're going to reweight $400 million or 0.5% of our portfolio, you know, because we like what's happening on some numbers that we're seeing. We're going to move $500 million into commodities and they go buy a bunch of commodity index funds that happen to own a little bit of each of these metals. And then, you know, a bunch of buying shows up in those metals and, you know, depending on what's going on those metals they'll pop a certain amount or they'll go down a certain amount you know based on that money arriving so um you know that that's the, those are always the trickiest kind of moves um and again the key thing is is if you understand the fundamentals 
and the technicals, then you can isolate those times when it's you know a purely a momentum move, and you need those other two things to show up to confirm you know because momentum will burn out on its own. If the fundamentals don't support a move higher or lower, then the price is going to come back down to where the you know the fundamentals you know are, are there to support it over the long you know over the long term. So it sounds like on the momentum, you kind of got short term momentum or you know um, immediate momentum, and you kind of got a longer term thematic momentum. Which can affect uh, yeah. the market as well. Okay, so I, I, I just wanted yeah. to kind of just talk about those things, just so people can understand that. Yeah, no, no. One way to think about it is 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 the way I have explained it is that basically prices will t- tend to stay in technical ranges, um, you know, unless a fundamental um, event occurs. So you know that's you know sometimes why you know why do prices stay in a range for a while? I mean, it really is a lot of these you can do it on a chart and you can see, okay, you know, it, it's trading in this channel or that channel. Um, and unless, a, you know, so you think of laws of physics, you know, that's, you know, a price will remain in a technical range unless a fundamental event occurs or a momentum event occurs to pop it back out again. So that's kind of the, the way I, 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 I've, I've always sort of thought about commodity prices. Right. And uh, I think the current uranium market would agree with you. Right. Let us <laughs> talk about nickel, though. Let's come back to, to nickel, the commodity, okay? Because we, we've had lots of questions being sent in to us after you know last week's session and the week before. And just trying to understand, it's it's, it's yeah. easy to kind of forget that you know people are starting from different points of understanding here. So, um, and people, have yeah. a lot of questions about the the battery thematic and nickel's use in that, and the you know what. What the battery designs will be, as, as you'd expect. But one of the questions came in, which was quite interesting. It was like, you know, what else is nickel used for? Which I thought was a, a good one. You kind of forget, right? So we're going to talk today about stainless steel. Yes, yes, a very exciting product, and the you know basically where two thirds of nickel is consumed today. So again, it's important to remember, you know, EVs are you know a massive part of the future, and EVs will probably be thirty percent of demand by twenty thirty. You know, but right now they're barely about you know four percent of current nickel demand. You know, sixty five percent or plus is stainless steel. Another fifteen to twenty percent is alloys is is alloy steel and and uh, and high nickel alloys, which are sort of variations of, of, of steel with varying amounts of nickel content in it. So in stainless steel, there's three main stainless steels. There's 300 series stainless steel, 400 series stainless steel, and 200 series stainless steel. So those are terms that you'll see talked about with stainless. What, what differentiates those categories is how much nickel is used in each one. So 300 is, is, uh, is basically called austenitic stainless steel, and it, and it has anywhere from 8% plus um, stainless steel. If you turn over a good piece of cutlery, um, you'll see an 18.8 stamped on it, or an 18.10 if it's even better stainless steel. And what the 18 and 10 are, 18 and 8 are, is the 18 is the amount of chrome. Um, it's the chrome that you know, starts to make things stainless. And then the, the 8 or the 10 is the amount of nickel that's in it, right? And the nickel helps it make it very stainless. So um, what happens is, um, uh, and stainless nickel also makes 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 it workable and less brittle. It doesn't snap as as easily. So um, so 300 series and 400 series were the primary types. No, 400 series has no nickel in it. It's just chrome. They they put a little more chrome in it um, to make it. One thing that's happened. Um, so in the early 2000s, when stainless steel appliances became you know the fashion, um, they used to use all 18.8 stainless steel. So good high grades you know, stainless steel. Um, but as nickel prices ran, 
um, what happened is in the mid 2000s, um, people started using these 200 series stainless steels, which were invented in the 1950s and 60s when Korean War and Vietnam War was on and nickel prices were high and nickel was tight. Some American companies came up with these lower, lower nickel content stainless steels called 200 series. They're kind of uh, in between. Um, and so what happened was a bunch of appliance people started moving from 300 series down to 200 series and then to 400 series stainless steel. So there's no nickel in it. So the unfortunate part for stainless, people think it's stainless, but what happens in when there's no nickel in it, and if you use a like a, you know, sort of a household bleach cleaner solution, anything with a little bit of bleach in it, over time that will actually corrode the, the thing. So if you Google around, you'll see people. So why is my stainless steel uh, rusting? It's because they didn't buy stainless steel, um, you know, with with the amount of nickel in it. Um, now, you know, fridges are one thing. Um, what happened in the mid 2000s is. In 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 uh, the developing world, the way you could tell um, the good stainless with the nickel in it from the bad stainless, the 400 series, um, is people would use a magnet. And so the 400 series was magnetic, the 300 series wasn't magnetic. Well, this 200 series stuff in between was also not magnetic. So um, some less than scrupulous um, uh, um, manufacturers in 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 certain countries. Uh, would continue to sell would would sell 200 series material passing it off as 300 series so again you know a fridge is one thing if it's a pump in a chemical factory um, that then fails and corrodes because it doesn't have enough nickel in it um, which actually did happen in china so that actually sort of you know um, stopped the use of more 200 series stainless steels in in, in a number of, of applications so um, yeah, so that's it. Basically, it comes down to sort of how much nickel is used. And 304 series stainless steel is the 18.8. You know, that's kind of the, the bread and butter of, of, of nickel and stainless steel. Interesting. I feel like I've just gone back to school and learned something. I like that. Metal, <laughs> yes, Metallurgy class 104. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you very much. Um, let's talk about uh, Ting Xiaoan for a moment um, and NPI. And, you know, yeah. how, how do you think that's yep. affected the market? No, that one of the massive benefits, and again, this is, you know, the Qingshan guys, uh, again, are good at sort of really thinking through the long term. You know, their, you know, their fundamental premise was, you know, we want stainless steel to grow, you know, be as wide, you know, used as, as, as widely as possible. And so the way you do it is to make the product as cheap as possible. So the way to do that, again, is to sort of, you know, find ways to strip costs out. So they've continued, you know, th their sort of surgent, you know, um, you know, massive growth in the industry has really driven down stainless steel costs, you know, pretty significantly. And, and what's what that's done is allowed stainless steel to be used in, in, in more, you know, many more applications. So, you know, why does stainless steel grow at five or six percent a year? And why does nickel grow at four or five percent a year? It's because, um, you know, over time, stainless steel has continued to evolve from a very niche product to a more mainstream product, you know, you know where you've got the scale benefits that you can take advantage of, you know, to lower the cost. And again, the reason I, you know, argue, you know, that so many analyst demand forecasts are too low is, you know, despite this massive growth for a very long period of time, stainless steel is still just three percent of the carbon steel market. You know, so there's so many more applications that, you know, if it was the right price, um, you know, the, you know, then it, then it would be used. So, um, you know that's um, you know that that's why I think you know stainless steel is going to continue to you know gain share um, you know over the coming years. Okay, so Mark, give me give me a sense sure. of uh, the numbers at the moment. I mean, are there regular numbers and regular updates that come out? Yeah, so that 
within the stainless steel market. So the, um, in nickel specifically, there's the International Nickel Study Group, and there's one for each of the, the major base metals. Um, for stainless steel, there's the ISSF, which is the world organization that compiles stainless steel numbers. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's quite a lag to these numbers come out, but when they do come out, they're sort of quoted as the official stainless steel numbers globally. So the ISSF, um, which is worldstainless.org um, website, uh, published their first quarter numbers, um, and they break it down by region and, and um, you know, a, a across a few broad categories. You know, as not, you know, it was down 8%. Um, uh, you know, year over year in the first quarter, which is not to be unexpected. Um, you know, second quarter will probably be even worse. You know, China really hadn't recovered yet and we hadn't really shut down in a major way the rest of the West yet. But I think, you know, what, what's encouraging is, is and it's surprising to me, um, you know, again, given the other fundamental numbers we're looking at, it wasn't really pointing to any big push in stainless production in China, but stainless reported 300 series. Again, that's the kind that's got the nickel, lots of nickel in it. You know, that was up 11% year over year, right? So, you know, that, you know, and China itself is more than half of the market. So, you know, you know, that is, you know, starts to create some significant momentum going forward. So as long as we don't stop, you know, I think we've had the worst of what's going to happen in the West. So we're going to be building up from a base here. And, and again, this Chinese growth, um, you know, continues to be strong. Again, you see a bunch of other macro broad indicators that say, you know, we, China is, is building fixed asset infrastructure. The, the Baltic Dry Index, which is related to a bunch of bulk, you know, bulk commodities, that's as high as it's been since September 2019. So, um, yeah. So, so again, I think um, you know, if you want to track stainless numbers, ISSF would be definitely you know one place to go. And, and you know, based on what's showing up in June, again, looks like we might be you know on our way back up again here. Okay, but they're running slightly behind the curve, and the numbers come out sort of after the event, as as it were. Right. Okay, but but it's it's still yes. worth noting. So I think that was quite a good um, rundown of you know why nickel is important in stainless steel, and to be able to understand the stainless steel market and where it's going is important if you think you're investing in in nickel. Um, and two thirds of the yeah. two thirds of nickel used in, in stainless steel is, is is significant. But the magic yeah. the magic comes when people think about the future. The future being these yeah. electric vehicles. So we got to talk about the electric vehicle yeah. market. So some of the numbers coming out look okay. They're, they're not what people expected. Yeah, no, I think with EVs, you know, the Chinese numbers tend to get a lot of the headlines. But what was 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 uh, very encouraging is the last month's reported numbers for Europe were up 80%. You know, month over month or quarter over quarter, 80% year over year. You know, and then in terms of the entire quarter, you know, first half, you're looking at over 50% growth year over year. So, you know, and, and Europe is already, you know, a, a significant portion of the EV market, you know, so, um, you know, China is still struggling with the pullback in the subsidies that they had placed in terms of getting some momentum back in, in EV sales. Um, but, you know, China has a, you know, a stated goal of 25% of vehicle sales to be electric by 2025. When the Chinese state a goal publicly um, and put it up in bright lights more than once, you know, they will deliver on that target. So, um, you know, so again, you know, don't get too caught up with, okay, Chinese sales this month, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, where they are. They will be selling 8 million electric vehicles, a minimum of those by you know, 2025. And then when you get to the rest of the world, you know, again, I think we talked about this, you know, last week was, you know, the governments as part of COVID want to reshape their economy, right? Let's take this opportunity, this crisis, 
to reshape the economy the way we want it to, to sort of evolve in the future. And sort of the, the whole electric vehicle platform is a big part of that. So, you know, I think these numbers, again, you know, really reinforce that that, that shift, you know, is, is really, really happening. There's another sort of good, you know, one-off data point that you know Volkswagen, one of their sort of longest-running car factories, is now going to be producing 100% electric vehicles. They produced their last internal combustion engine at sort of one of their historic uh, auto manufacturing plants. So I think again, we're going to start to see more and more of those those types of milestones uh, happen as we move forward here. So this is all good news for nickel. The subsidies are coming back in to Europe. I think the Chinese have reinstated their their subsidies yep. for automotive or electric vehicle um, cars um, what are we able to glean from this you know when let's 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 move in fact segue over to um, mining companies nickel mining companies right yeah you know we've um, yep. we've heard um, a couple of acquisitions last week some big acquisitions you talked about last week the market's yep. hotting up somewhat um, where's the next big nickel deal coming from no I mean that's that's the <laughs> You know, the, the, I mean, the reality is there's not a lot of, 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 of nickel assets available. You've got a handful of, of Western Australian companies, um, you know, producers like Western Western areas. Um, um, you've got um, oh, uh, nickel mines in Australia that owns a chunk of the Qingshan operation in Indonesia. Um, you know, and, and then you've got Share It in Canada as a standalone producer. But, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of companies that are that are there. So I think you know, that scarcity value, you know, should should start to make things interesting. You know, again, I think, you know, we'll need to see more momentum in nickel prices for, to see sort of the herd start to come. But again, you always want to be in front of the herd. Um, that's when you make, um, you know, lots of money. So, um, but, you know, I think the signs there, we talked, you know, the prior week that the, you know, the two of the large low grade sulfide assets uh, in, in Australia are both gone. So literally all of the good, large, low grade sulfide assets are now gone from Australia. Um, so, you know, with what we have in Canada nickel, I think the value relative value of that just, you know, ticked up a notch. And I think, you know, again, another sense of where this, you know, where the smart money is going. Um, there's a startup called Cobalt. Um, it's a, um, you know, massive private equity. They, they highlight the fact that, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, a fund that they are invested in, has invested in them. And their whole thing is they're out looking for cobalt and battery metals um, globally. And they've got all these, you know, high tech Silicon Valley, um, you know, data scientists crunching, you know, places to go find uh, more cobalt. And, and they came to Canada. They basically picked up a large um, property in northern Quebec, uh, adjacent to I'm on the chair. I'm chair of Orford, um, and they picked up a bunch of property. Um, you know, it, you know, we around kind of you know where we are. We think we've got the best bits that aren't owned by Glencore, and and uh, you know the Canadian Royalties Nunavik mine that's up there. But um, you know, again, that's you know that's where they're having to go to find what they think is high potential, um, you know, you know assets. And they've only I think that's their first, you know. Uh, first project acquisition. And, and again, I encourage people to go to that website. They've got a lot of people, so they've obviously raised a lot of money. Um, and, you know, they've, they've obviously, you know, tipped into, um, you know, the, sort of the, the Silicon Valley VC market. And so, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see sort of, you know, where, where, you know, what parts of the world and how they look to uh, um, go, go forward. Well, so, uh, well, the interesting bit for me is because I've seen this before in other uh, sectors, other verticals, where you kind of get a lot of money and it doesn't necessarily convert into value um, because they don't actually understand what they're doing. The money, the money covers up a lot, of, yep. papers up a lot of cracks, as we say here in the UK. 
Um, but yeah, yeah we, we, sh we should go and have a look at that and sort of see um, what that's about. Um, but interesting times, it suggests uh, an intent and suggests um, the fact there's a lot of conversation going on with, you know, people are looking at the macro story here and they're buying into the battery thematic for sure. Um, so what, what's, what's your call on nickel going forward? Just so I, just so I can pick you up on it next week. You think we're gonna, it's gonna reset back down again for a bit? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, we may pop another five or 10 cents higher from here, but right. until those fundamentals confirm the momentum move, I would love to say that nickel prices are going to hang in above six bucks. But yeah, yeah I think we're going to trade the 580 to $6 a pound range here for another few months. Um, right. But but again, you know, the you know, we're seeing the recovery in stainless. We're seeing, you know, sort of the the sales growth in EVs and a number of markets. So again, I think the medium and long-term, you know, story remains intact and, and we're gonna continue to move higher from here. You know, what we need to resolve over the next six months is a little triangle of, you know, um, NPI growth from Indonesia as those plants ramp up mm. versus ore supply from the Philippines to China, which will starve, you know, or, you know, will they, will they starve, you know, NPI production in China, which will be more than offset the NPI growth from Indonesia. And then sort of how strong the recovery in nickel and stainless demand is going to be from China. And so far, you know, that that's looking very strong. So it'll be a question of, of you know, how those other two uh, aspects play out. So I'm going to try Oh, you know, over the next few sessions here to start to provide some data regularly to be able to help, you know, um, help, help, uh, you know, people sort of keep track of where we are on that little triangle, uh, which I think is going to be the key determinant over the six months until the EV story completely overwhelms what's going on in the market in a positive way. Um, you know, it'll be that little triangle that decides where nickel prices go in the next you know, six to 12 months. Okay. Are you up for a challenge? I am always. You are always. Okay. Well, next week when you're on, We've started the gathering these questions. You're going to be asked questions by the Crux Investor Club members and some of our subscribers. Okay, okay? so I'm I've I've kind of got a day off, which is great news. Uh, all I got to do is ah. read these out to you. So um, if you're up for that, um, so lots of questions questions have been sent in. I think people are getting interested in nickel. They're understanding that nickel is picking up momentum, and perhaps now is the time to start picking a few horses in the race. So. Uh, that is what's happening next week then, Mark. You've accepted the challenge. Okay, no, that's great. And, and again, encourage people, I, I, the best questions are the ones where they, you know, people call you, you say you're full of BS and I don't believe anything you're saying or you're totally wrong on this. You know, it's that, that debate, you know, that really gets things going. And I'll remind people six weeks ago when we talked about, you know, turning points in mid-May and I said, you know, it really felt like, you know, copper and nickel prices were starting to turn. Um, you know, copper and nickel prices have gone up 10 to 15% and they've had a nice, you know, significant move up there. But the high leverage, the high torque stocks that benefit when you get that first step up in prices, companies like Capstone to Seiko, those stocks are up 40 to 50% in six weeks. Wow. You know, so, you know, it's, that's why, you know, part of the reason I was so keen to talk about those turning points are, the, again, those are, you know, you get them once or twice a cycle. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're just great opportunities to, to you know, make some um, some real, you know, some some great return. Fantastic. Well, Mark, thank you again for this week. That's lovely. Like I said, I felt like I felt like I went back to school there, learned a thing or two. I'm, I'm going to look at my cutlery completely differently now. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll catch you next week. Um, get those questions in front of you and hopefully we have a really good session. Appreciate it. Excellent. That sounds great. No, thanks, Matthew. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. 
We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming and we'll speak to you again soon.